Hello, welcome to the pod, people. I'm your egg boy, Matisse Van Rossum. I'm your powerful goatee, Cleveland T. Mosier. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm Ben Sheets, and uh, guys, have you seen Clotilda? Uh, no. Is she been around? What's going on? I think she's vanished. Oh no! Oh, what are we gonna oh, do? Oh my god! We better retrace our our very recent steps and see if we can find her. She did vanish mysteriously from my closet not long ago. Oh. Uh, before we get into our discussion for the evening, uh, Ben, do you want to do a uh, final update on? Uh, oh yeah, on our on our happy death Let, day numbers. Let's do that. I need to bring up the final tally from Box Office Mojo here. It's the final tally. I started in the wrong key. That's okay. Well, let's, uh, before you do the box office, uh, is there any update on the Rotten Tomatoes? It's the tomato double check! Uh, on, on last week's episode, it was standing at, uh, 64%, and Ben, you had guessed 65, so you were one off. Yes, and it looks like it has gone up to 67%. Oh shit! Well, good for good for Happy Death Day, uh, yeah. but that just puts it farther out of mine and Cleve's reach. So you're definitely the winner for that yes. one, Ben. Uh, slight edge there. Um, it looks like the opening box office weekend has come in. Let's see, Tease, you guessed uh, it would do an opening box office weekend of twenty million. Okay, Cleve, you said it would do an opening box office of oh. eight million. Yeah. And I said uh, it would do an opening box office of $23 million. Um, well, the opening box office weekend results well, are... It wasn't in. $8 million, I can tell you that. Uh, well, it was $9.5 million. Whoa, really? So you win Cleveland oh, shit. again. Even though you keep about that. complaining oh. about <laughs> how bad your predictions are, you keep winning. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So if I'm not mistaken, that puts the uh, current score at Cleveland uh, 3, Ben, you're at 2, and I am bringing up the rear with 1. Yes. God, I hope I can make up some ground with these next couple of movies. Yeah, well, the next one we have is Us. In a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, a couple of weeks. Fuck, yes, so excited. This betting thing is really unfair to you guys, too, because, like, my guesses are by far the least educated. So it's just random fucking I mean, chance. you had the same amount of information that we did. We watched the basic trailer. Well, yeah, we shared we shared the information with you. But so I've been, like, running these bets, like, since before I was on the podcast. We've done it one. have got a we've better sense it. of the film industry overall. This is right. only our second year doing the show, so we've we've done this once before. And our predictions last year, in fairness, were pretty bad, too, so <laughs> it's a low bar to I had, me. I had some close ones. I mean, it's it's impossible to 100% completely accurately predict the market. Sure. You know, it's just going, it's basically going off of, does that look like a good movie? If so, or if not, does it look like a movie that people will go see? That's basically all we're doing. So you're an educated human being. You are just as as good at guessing this stuff as we are. Better even, apparently. Uh, but um, yeah, so we'll uh, do an update on that in a couple of weeks when we talk about us. This evening, we're uh, going back to the year 1988. 
and talking about the uh, psychological thriller horror film by George Sloutzer uh, called The Vanishing. Uh, this is a film that I have seen once or twice before, and this was a first-time watch for both of y'all, correct? Yeah, mm-hmm. I hadn't seen it before. I had heard plenty about it, but um, it's very new. Uh, it is in the Criterion Collection. Not that they always make the best picks, but I personally think that uh, it deserves to be there. Yeah, um, uh, I didn't know anything about this film going in, so it was a real schlout in the dark for me. Uh, <laughs> but um, I was, I was, yeah, well, we'll get into how I felt about it. Um, just a little background. Uh, it is based on a uh, novel by a Dutch author. Um, I forget his name, but the, the novel is called The Golden Egg, uh, and he also adapted uh, his novel into the screenplay for this film. And they even set up a production company called Golden Egg uh, Productions that produced this. And uh, it is about a uh, Dutch couple, Rex and Saskia, on a um, road trip to France. And at a uh, truck stop uh, in France, Saskia mysteriously vanishes without a trace. It's sort of about uh, Rex's obsession continuing after three years to try to figure out what happened to her and how he comes in contact with the man who abducted her. I, I think that's a pretty great description. I think, yeah, this movie was an interesting, interesting ride, to say the least. It was very tense at times. The thing I found interesting is, unlike where... You know, tension a lot of times in movies is built with dramatic irony and the audience knowing more than the characters. For the majority of this movie, we knew just about as much as the characters and, you know, a lot of things were given directly to us. The answers were very direct. Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, I, I would agree for the most part, except... Uh, you know, relatively early on, we, uh, we see Raymond, the, the man who has abducted and presumably killed Saskia, and I would say the, the film follows him for pretty much equal, if not more time than, uh, Rex, but the answer as to what exactly happened to her, they withhold completely until the very end. That is something that we do uh, discover with Rex and, uh, the rest of it is sort of like seeing how Raymond went about like planning this abduction and the events that led up to that and his sort of, uh, yeah, we get the insight into his personality, right? This film I would say is a, is a really good study of a sociopath. Um, one of, one of the better ones that I've seen, but also, one of the things that I think makes it so good and and kind of horrifying at the same time is how mundane it all is. The, yeah. There's there's so much stuff where we watch Raymond like practicing like how he's going to get a woman into his car and how he's going to put his arm around her to lock the door and then bring the his rag around with the chloroform you know we see him chloroform himself and he he uh he's timing it he's timing it to see how long he'll be out for with how much he uses he times it like how long it's gonna take him to walk around the car like he we we get to see all the nuance and how long she'll be 
out for compared to how long it will take him to drive from where he picks her up back to wherever he's taking her. So it's all extremely methodical and, like I said, just extremely mundane. This isn't like a Silence of the Lambs kind of thing where you've got this, like, really sort of, like, evil serial killer. It's just, like, a a very shockingly normal man going uh, about how he plans to abduct and kill somebody. Yeah, well, and I like that they don't make him, like, this genius mastermind, brilliant dude, you know? Right, exactly. Like, at one point, he is trying to kidnap a girl, and he gets her into the car, and then he has to sneeze, and he uses the handkerchief that... That has the chloroform chloroform on it. And has to just run away because he knows he's going to pass out. Right, exactly. Uh, No, I I love that kind of stuff, too. Like, when he's practicing the movement that he's going to take around the car after he holds open the passenger door to let her in and then go around the back of the car and put the chloroform in the rag and he messes it up a couple times and he has to keep practicing. It's, It's just like, this is such a completely average dude. He's not like a, like a, an evil genius mastermind or anything. He's just really methodical. And I think it's, it's a really excellent portrait of what sociopaths and psychopaths are like in real life because oh, yeah. a lot of times they are just like dudes yeah his believability and his mundanity are the things that make him in some cases a little bit more terrifying i think so too that's that's why i find this movie pretty disturbing despite the fact that it has no real violence in it whatsoever and no on on camera death how run-of-the-mill it is that i think makes it kind of terrifying just like you were saying cleave yeah like in the moment it doesn't really feel that terrifying. The film sat with me very well. Like, when I was watching the movie, like, especially considering, like, how slowly, like, paced out the film is, and, like, when, even when there are events occurring, they're, they're, very, they're very mundane. So during the watching of the movie, um, I, was pretty, I was pretty comfortable with it, uh, with any of the events occurring. Uh, you know, I- intrigued by them, for sure, but uh, not terrified until... Later, like until like later that night and I was thinking about the movie, that's when it kind of started to kind of seep back in. It's a cre- it's a me. creeper. See, yeah. Yeah. This movie is definitely like an atmospheric slow burn with just a killer sort of Faustian bargain to finish up the third act. Yeah. We'll um, get which into I that. think I think is what pulls it into horror territory. Honestly, outside of the third act, I didn't particularly find it terrifying, but I found it to be a strong, well-made movie in spite of that. A lot of the the, the slow burn stuff, and you're going to hate this comparison, but I kind of saw it similar to uh, movies like Don't Look Now. I don't hate that comparison. I don't like that movie, but I don't think that it's a bad comparison, at least in terms of the pacing. I will disagree that the third act is what makes it horror. I think that sequence has the most, like, plot-based action. That's when the film, like, picks up and starts moving. But for me, it was a lot of the sequences earlier on in the film with him interacting with his family and plotting things out that sat with me. 
uh, after watching the film that I found to be the most horrifying. I think the the very end also recontextualizes several scenes. Yes. Uh, yes before absolutely. that, I think maybe maybe terrifying is the wrong word, but uh, unsettling. Yeah. Um. I I remember the first time I saw this movie several years ago. I watched it by myself, and as the credits were rolling, I was kind of just sitting there thinking about it, and I was like, I I kind of like gave myself the heebie-jeebies just like thinking about uh certain earlier scenes in the movie that are completely recontextualized by what happened at the very end and i think that that is what sort of gives this movie a lot of its power for me because it it does take its time it's not particular it's not scary the killer himself is not even a particularly threatening or imposing individual. For most of the movie, it is a very straightforward drama with with some mystery elements. I find a lot of the stuff to, especially like on a second watch, knowing how it ended and being able to watch the whole film with that in mind, uh, I I think it just made the experience even better. Um, it was it was even better for me on a second watch than it was on the first one. I can see that because there's a lot of minutia in the the thematic ties in this movie, uh, like anything to do with like the golden egg and uh, certain like compounding character traits between Rex and the killer. There's there's a number of tiny things uh, in this film to sort of look out for, including just the the cinematography in general, which is quite nice. Uh, yeah, I, I can see I can see going back over this film and just and being able to just focus on those elements um, and and take away something from it, especially just like the 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 nuance and depth of the killer and like how just little little things um, like his his movements uh, even in certain scenes like just the way he's he's looking at the world around him like or uh, say sociopath at times. I think that the the way that it plays with nonlinear storytelling is is really nice too how yeah. a lot of the stuff that we see Raymond doing you know in his preparation to uh kidnap somebody appears to be something that is occurring after, after. he after he's taken Saskia yeah, a lot you, of that setup you know there's a lot of back and forth between you know moving backwards and forwards in time that the film doesn't like let on that it's not like it doesn't have any title cards that are like uh, 3 years later or yeah. 1 year ago or anything like that you know i i really appreciate that it's subtle, but at the same time, like, the narrative is simple enough in its structure that it's not confusing, that it jumps around. You always yeah, it's know not what's, terribly hard to You follow. always know what's happening. Yeah, the chronology is sort of used, like, as a means to, to strip away the dark facade of the, um, the, the, the serial killer. Like, or, uh, not serial killer, sorry, just the killer. It, it's flashing back to him preparing to kill her after we've already seen her vanish. So you do you do sort of think that he is a serial killer, and as we learn later, like that he was just sort of preparing for that. As those scenes are revealed to us, he he appears more regular as a person and more bumbling. That that was a very interesting twist for me. That the the murderer is even more of a regular person than than you would think, and I, I enjoyed that how the film just slowly strips away this idea of him being 
uh, a true non-comprehensible monster and being something that you can very well understand and almost relate to. Well, what I what I like so much about that aspect of it is, uh, you know, later in the film, he reveals himself to Rex, uh, you know, three years later, and he's telling Rex about all of this preparation and how he got to this point. And he, we get a flashback to him when he's 16 and he's like sitting on a balcony and he like climbs over the railing and he leans over and we we're getting his voice over at the same time. And he's like, people always think about jumping without ever really having the intention of doing it. So does that mean they're destined not to jump? Well, in that case, the only way that it is not predestined is if I do jump. And he uses that as an analogy for why he decides to kill somebody. Because everybody has those thoughts about what if I killed somebody? And he just decided, just like he decided to jump, he decided to to take that leap and, you know, kidnap and kill somebody. Right, which is cool, because that, that doesn't seem to be too uncommon in your, your standard sociopath, right? Like, your average person has those sorts of thoughts, and they're able to kind of put them back, whereas it comes to the front of a sociopath's mind, and they don't have that human aspect stopping them and saying, oh, well, wait, no, you know, like, and, and thinking about it again. Because our, our brains are always, like, sort of kicking in with that, that sense of survival and trying to read the room. You know, you get those, those constant little flight or, uh, fight or flight, you know, sort of uh, thoughts. Well, yeah. I think on more of a thematic level, it works well, too, with yeah. the idea of... Destiny is uh, a big destiny theme of this and film, fate yeah. In a lot of ways, um, because I think, honestly, for me, the strongest part of the film in general was the themes of it with the golden egg and destiny. Because the golden egg is used, you know, at the beginning with the girl. She uh, explains that she had a dream where she was uh, stuck in a golden egg floating through space all alone. Throughout the movie, they kind of play on that idea of the horrors of loneliness and isolation in right. a lot of ways. Well, another another important part of her dream is mm. that she says that this is a dream that she's had before, but this time there was somebody else imprisoned in another golden egg. And they collided. And when they collided and when they met, that was the end of everything. And... It's after that that she is abducted and, and you know, she vanishes. So I, I think that that gives you that poignant idea of destiny where she's had this dream before about being imprisoned, but it was always by herself. And then when she has the dream that there's somebody else and they collide, that is, you know, the the predestined moment, you know, when she is abducted. Yeah, um, well, I, I almost even saw... And we'll get into this a little bit more mm-hmm. when we talk about the ending. But I see that kind of as a metaphor for a coffin, even. Oh, yeah. You know, golden egg. Um, and the idea of... Well, yeah, that being coll- sealed inside Collision, something. yeah. Bringing everything to an end is Rex ultimately sealing his fate because he can't let go of the one golden egg that right. kept him from loneliness. Well then and halfway halfway through the film he has the same dream. Yep. There is that idea of shared destiny and at that point it's 3 years later and he has another girlfriend, you know, who he's been dating for several months at this point, but he's still so completely obsessed with, you know, figuring out what happened to Saskia 
even though he realizes that, you know, she is probably dead, but he has to know what happened. So that obsession drives him away from, you know, his other relationship. He is imprisoned by that obsession. Yeah, absolutely. Just as in in a similar way that that Raymond is sort of imprisoned by his obsession with killing somebody, you know? So there's, there's all of the characters are kind of like trapped in these, you know, quote unquote golden eggs, you know, hurtling through space. And it's, you know, the, the major events of the movie are about those collisions, you know, where they come together. And I, I really like how at the beginning, when their their car runs out of gas in the tunnel, you know, they're in this dark, empty space, and there's only the, the light on in the car, and it's kind of golden light, you know, and it's after she's told him about this dream, and he leaves, you know, to go get gas, and he abandons her in the tunnel, and, you know, when he comes back later on, you know, she makes him promise, you'll never abandon me again, <laughs> So that, I think, is what drives his obsession for the next three years, that he'll never be able to get over it because he, you know, promised to not abandon her. And to him, that means doing whatever it takes to figure out what happened to her, even if she's dead. He's not going to abandon that idea of her. I want to talk about the car a bit, too, because it also felt very literal um, with her being the golden egg. The visual aspects of her seem to be in this, like, golden egg with the lighting of the car in the tunnel. Um, there was also that fear of collision because there were the other cars passing right. by. And you felt like a, another literal, like, one of these golden eggs will co- collide. The tension of that scene with these cars whizzing by theirs and their lights were going out. Also, I really felt like Rex was an asshole. Like, the way he he just walked out when she's, like, yeah. s- shouting after him, like, oh, God, don't leave me, or she's panicking, she's trying to find her flashlight. Oh, which is another huge point. Like, she's, like, when Rex leaves her, she she says, like, wait, I'll come after you, just let me let me find my flashlight, and Rex doesn't want to wait around in the tunnel. Right. Um, and he's like, if you want to wait, just wait, but I'm going. And she starts panicking and just trying to find her light and trying to find her flashlight, and she's sort of breaking down. And she's shouting out for Rex to wait. And Rex is just a fucking asshole and just keeps walking. Like, and I was just like, what a dick. Like, what a dick during that scene. I enjoyed it in particular because it felt believable to me. Like, it felt like he was a, uh, a not a, like a terrible person for doing that. He was just trying to be like well, yeah, know, I a don't... stoic man and try and go and get the gasoline. And afterwards, he says something that kind of helps justify his decision there that I loved. And that was, um, he says to her, you know, when you were shouting after me, when I was walking away, I've never loved you more. God, what an asshole. But I loved that. <laughs> like, I thought that was right. That his, was cool. His realization, like, how much she needed him was what made him love her more. No, I, I like that, too. Like, he's definitely not a bad guy, but plenty of times in the he's movie, not great. He's, also, he's also not very likable, you yeah, know? Yeah, he's, he's an asshole. He's a, he's a real asshole, but I was still... He feels re- he feels like a real person, though. Oh, which, yeah, which, absolutely. Very yeah, believable. Really like. and... He throws the weakest punches in all of Europe. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, the, the actor who plays Raymond, uh, I don't have his name in front of me, the... He's a Frenchman, so it's something something French. Before that scene, he purposely like picked a fight with the actor who is playing Rex. 
like was just insulting him and stuff and then so once they got the camera rolling the actor who played rex was like legitimately like furious at him so he actually tried to to beat the shit out of him but man those are some wimpy ass punches (laughs) no he he, like got some weak hands he doesn't even like go in with like legitimate punches he's like hitting him with his they're like they're like wwe punches you know they're (laughs) i mean credit to wwe like they could at least sometimes make it look like reasonable the punches are the weakest looking thing in wrestling oh yeah i mean even then like i mean comparatively like this it's just he's he because he's making contact but it's it's with like the flat of his wrists but at the same time it's so pathetic it it is extremely pathetic but but at the same extremely believable like when you're just like so fucking mad and you're not thinking and you're just kind of like flailing you know like a like a child having a temper tantrum and i mean it's it's believable too because like after three years this guy has shown up and been like your obsession spoke to me like i'm the guy who abducted your your girlfriend like i'll tell you exactly what happened but you gotta come with me you gotta play my game to to have you know three years of just like single-minded obsession and you know trying to find saskia without literally any trace of her existing just to have some the you know raymond show up like that and be so blasé about it and turn it into a game like that would be infuriating i think it would send you into into kind of a, a blind rage yeah i i agree i think that was well done even though i mean the the he looks yeah he looks like a total a he looks like puncher. a total sissy but yeah um it feels real it feels it feels more real than if they had done like a choreographed fight scene oh, yeah. or something you know if, I had any criticism of the movie, it would probably be the middle section of the movie dragging, mostly with Rex's role in it. After the three years have gone by, the scenes we get of him with his new girlfriend kind of obsessing over the past. It fits a role in the movie, but I think it goes on for a bit too long, and it's not as enthralling as either the Raymond stuff or the disappearance or the the Faustian bargain. Uh, well, while I would m- maybe agree that it might not be as as interesting as some of the other stuff that happens in the movie, I think that it's extremely necessary for for making his decision at the end believable because at the end when Raymond is like I'll let you know what happened. I'll tell you what happened to her, but you can only do it by experiencing exactly what happened to her. I'm going to give you this coffee. It's drugged. You know, you're, you're going to go to sleep and you'll know what happened to her. It's like, that's obvious. Be like, this is a fucking trap. I'm not going to do this. Like, are you fucking kidding me? But I think, will I take the jump or not? You know, right. I think the, and the whole middle section, you know, where we see Raymond obsessing about it and going on a vacation with his new girlfriend, back to France and being taunted by the postcards from Raymond, you know, meet me here. And then he never shows up so he can watch him. And then going to the place where he and Saskia were bound for and seeing a vision of them showing up. And that's when he has the, he sort of like passes out and has a fit and like has the dream about the golden egg. While all of that stuff might not be, as immediately engaging as the stuff at the beginning or the end, it makes 
the the outcome at the end when he does decide to drink the drugged coffee, all of that stuff in the middle makes that decision. Well, like make I said, sense. you know, it serves a structural purpose, and I think it does a good job with that. I think there's just too much of it. I think if they would have used it a little more sparingly, but used the key moments of that, a lot of that would have still come across. I I was just re- uh, I liked I did uh, well I I do think that the the effect you're describing is is legitimate. I think that it is very the middle section of the film is, is very vacuous. I do think that it does serve a goal and that you 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 are sort of made to feel like Rex like you have been waiting for this span of time without learning anything. And yeah, like I think like Tisha was saying like it does it does contribute to the third act. You're more keen I to think, know because you've been sort of made well, to I wait think, and I think stew. Part of the reason is with the structure of the movie, in a lot of ways you're primed to expect, you know, some sort of mystery or something like that. Because that's, you know, traditional Hollywood. That's what you get in right. movies like this. Disappearance, you're going to have a character try to un- like, uncover the mystery, uncover yeah. the mystery reveal it's, it's more a- and more information. And you really don't get that in this movie. It's not a whodunit. Um, it's a it's a deliberate withholding of the last piece of information that you as the viewer need, just like Rex. Which you're, is just how did she go? Every everything else you're learning a little bit ahead of Rex because we spend a lot of time with Raymond. So you're you're slightly ahead of him. But you're right, it's not a whodunit. It's not a murder mystery. The question is what happened to Saskia? We know she got abducted and she hasn't been seen since. What happened to her? So that is that last tantalizing piece of information that's being withheld from the audience and from the protagonist simultaneously uh, until, you know, we do discover at the very end. Yeah. I guess I guess it's just more quantity than anything else, though. I mean, like... I, I agree those scenes that you mentioned uh, with Rex are standout scenes and really help the middle section of the movie and go towards the, the themes, especially going to the third act. But I don't really need to see Rex, like, yelling in the streets. Oh, you didn't you like know? that? I love that part. Yeah. Again, I think it is necessary to his character to show how it is eating him alive. Like, I think, and, and like I think that, you get that, that public though. freak I think out you is the culmination of it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that it's one of those it's one of those cases where it's more like the sum of its parts than each individual scene. Like you you could, you know, grasp what they're trying to say with fewer of those scenes or with sure. certain ones over others. Uh, you know, certain ones might be more relevant or crucial to the actual character development. But it's it's the the accumulation of all of them together and what they're all trying to say that contribute most importantly to the way the film ends. I agree. I I really enjoy being like set to sort of sit in the middle of a movie in some circumstances. Like I I enjoy like in a narrative uh sort of being set adrift for a little while and and made to just sort of experience like what's happening to the characters and wondering and they're not necessarily needing to be a direct expositional purpose for every scene in a film. I think I think that there's there's plenty of room for sequences to just give us like more depth into what we already know and to just further explore uh these characters 
Um, and I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for that, looking back on it especially. Yeah, sure. you know, it's like uh, a house a house can stand up with, you know, just the four walls, but if you have a couple of supports in, in the structure as well, it'll... You know, or just wallpaper. It stands up, like, you like, know, stronger. The wallpaper of of the house, you know, doesn't necessarily serve a legitimate function, but I I, I value it. I, I think it's still nice. It's to have. it's hard. It's well, hard to say. It, I it's one of those things too, where upon reflection, it works better too, because it, like like we've been saying, you know, it's a slow burn. So with the payoff in the third act, it pays off really well. During those sequences, it can feel a little flat um, for me. Um, I can I can totally understand thematically. That, right? All can... of them work well, and they have a very good structural purpose there. In the moment, they felt a little flat. I think especially like they they will feel flat if you go into this film like looking for something more modern and more American, like and more like formatted you know, around, like, exposition, like, and formatted around, like, that constantly seeking the end of the film. But there's there's a few other, like, uh, sort of European films and, like, even um, Eastern movies that I've seen that, like, sort of take a similar approach to this film that I tend to enjoy, personally. It's, this is an extremely European film. Extremely. It is It is much more meandering than... Uh, a lot of what you would see in American cinema. Well, I think what the biggest thing that separates it from a movie, for example, like Elephant, where Elephant is a lot of ways similar to this movie in that it's a preparation for a horrible act of violence in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, where this movie stands out where Elephant does it is the little bit more understanding of Raymond that we get than we do in Elephant. Yeah. And I think that comes in a lot of ways once Raymond and Rex come together. Um, sure. Because they work very well as foils together, and it really culminates once that happens. But in a lot of similar ways, Elephant feels flat at times during those sequences because there's no foil that they can bounce off of. So it works structurally, yeah. it works thematically, but in terms of dynamic appeal, it doesn't feel as strong until those characters can work off each other. I will I, definitely say it is a legitimate, it is absolutely a legitimate point. It's not what I believe, but I do think it, it's legitimate to say that like the film sort of falls apart in the middle because like the tension is sort of like diffused. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed being set adrift and the the immediate tension sort of like just evaporating from the movie as we just sort of learn more about these characters and the sequences, you know, take on more of a nebulous role than a, a directive one until that third act again. I, but again, I, I can also absolutely see that that being the other being valid. Yeah, right? I, I can I can see that, too. I Elephant is an interesting film to compare it to. I don't know if I would have made that connection, but I, I, I do think you're right. I also think that, at least on this watch for me, it has been years since I've seen this movie, so I had forgotten a lot of the middle part of the film, um, and, you know, I, I had the stuff that really stuck with me the most, which was the ending, so it was kind of like experiencing the film all over again, but having the ending in mind so I could see how those scenes 
keyed into the climb to the outcome i could see that retextualizing it well especially with the raymond section because i i honestly um, i i can say truthfully that i don't remember how i felt about a lot of that stuff while i was watching it for the first time well, and that's, i just remember being impacted by the end and the end recontextualizing how i thought of the entire film that's that's the thing about it because even the middle while it um, is a little flat in comparison to the strengths of the beginning and the end. It all works so well structurally and thematically that on, you know, reflection of it, you'll think of it as a package and, you know, you'll yeah. remember it for the ending and for what it's trying to say more than, you know, the details of JKL MNOP. Sure. You know? Yeah, no, 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 I agree. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit uh, more about the theme of destiny and how it keys into the end. Cause one of the things that I like so much about this movie is when we get to the point where Raymond is explaining to Rex what actually happened the day that he abducted Saskia, like how that went about at the, the truck stop. Because for the entire movie, we've been seeing him planning really methodically and, like, figuring out exactly how he's going to do this. So you're expecting that to be, you know, his plan goes off without a hitch. But then we end up seeing that no matter how much he planned, every time he tries to abduct a woman the way he's planned to, something happens that makes it not work. And the reason that he eventually got Saskia was total happenstance. Well, he he essentially given up. Right. Like, like, it was yeah, he was ready guy. to go home for the day. It was total happenstance. And she saw the keychain that his daughter had given him that had the R on it. And she says, Oh, I need a keychain for my boyfriend whose name also starts with an R. Well, even funnier than that, I don't know if you guys noticed, but before that she had buried some coins with Yeah rex and that's right. why she needed to get change right for the exactly machine because she didn't have change because they because was... they buried the coins right outside yeah so oh man i you know i had not realized uh the coins in context with her fishing in her bag that's awesome it's, yeah yeah, yeah very that's cool. why she starts talking right. with him in the first place because she doesn't have change for the espresso yeah. machine in the gas station well i remember so that she, i just didn't associate yeah, the two that's oh, because that's cool, she yeah. she and raymond bury or she and rex buried the coins nice. outside so that's why she starts talking to raymond then she sees the keychain that he just happened to be given by his daughter for his his birthday so it is it's like the whole thing was predetermined that it's it was you know by total happenstance that this series of events led to her being the one who was taken yeah i really like this tete-a-tete between destiny and like the chaos of unpredictable events you get before that um you know you get right raymond try to pick up the random girl who turns out to be his daughter's, like, coach. Later, he is using a cast as a disguise. A fake cast, you know? yeah. And... Pulling the when, old Ted Bundy. When, yeah, when he's in the uh, in the gas station, someone tells him, you're not supposed to drive with a... It's illegal to drive with a cast. Right. He says, uh, what if I'm a passenger? 
even even the idea of being a passenger is a cool thematic idea with the movie because right. you know he's not driving he's not in control in a lot driving. of ways right, even exactly. though he's trying to set his destiny ultimately the evil act is even set by destiny right. just by happenstance the, the right. fact yeah that and the the fact that two golden eggs you know in empty space where there is nothing else that they can by chance meet and collide right and you know it's like when when everything says that they should never even see each other or that they should just fly past each other it's like there's very specific events that leads to that collision and all of those specific events feel uh so genuine too like they're they're the kinds of things that you experience in your own day-to-day life like when you're talking with a friend about somebody and then that somebody you were talking about calls it's it's those little those speak of the devil moments exactly right, it, it exactly. was those little things that all felt very genuine very believable they just happened to add up to such a consequential moment and uh because of that it it, it gives you that it, it washes away like your your sense of plot occurring like that those events were occurring because the writer had them happen that way and more so that just the events in that story in that world just were set off in that manner like a very nuanced very very good writing and like that like because it it, it didn't feel like writing and i I love that about it and you know we see we see raymond through so much of the film like with his family you know they're they're a very you know loving supportive family they have good relationships with each other they're not estranged and you know that's part of what makes what he's planning so so much creepier but the final piece of the puzzle at the end is when he tells Saskia to get into his car so he can chloroform her you know she's a little leery about it first cuz he's a stranger and she sees on his dashboard the photograph of him with his wife and his two daughters and she thinks ah family man he's safe and she gets into the car and he chloroforms her yeah well and it does a, such a great job of humanizing him, both through, you know, the mundane acts, through the family, but, you know, especially through making him so bumbling. I think if he was a master of his own destiny, you know, if he masterfully set up this plan and executed it, it wouldn't feel like he was as human of a character. Right. Because there's always things you can't account for. And I think exactly. this movie does a great and I job. Think, and I think all of that makes him a scarier character because it's it's so much more real than depictions of killers and sociopaths in other media, you know, because they are always evil in the context of a story, of a struggle versus, you know, with, between good and evil or something like that. And he's just a, he's a real person. And the fact that he's still capable of the things that he does, despite the fact how bumbling he is, despite the fact that he's, you know, a loving family man, despite the fact that outside of his desire to kill somebody, he's a a totally average human being. Like, that's what makes it scary, because people like that exist, and it just goes to show that you can never tell who those people are. Oh, yeah. Until it's too late. Oh, most definitely. And uh, while we're on the topic, too, of, like, the casual nature of this film, like, the mundanity of it, I wanted to bring up the cinematography specifically. It's funny. It's it's something I very much so enjoyed about this film, but there are a few aspects I felt could have been brought home a little bit more, and I'll, I'll get into it, the details. 
for the most part, this scene, the this film is shot very directly, um, and one or two times during the film, it even has like an amateurish sort of quality about it. For instance, there's a sequence where Rex is running after a car and the camera guy is just huffing along behind him <laughs> and like the camera's bouncing. But then there are other sequences in the movie, like for instance, uh, Rex's public freakout when he's in the middle of, um, is a, that's in France at the time, yeah. I believe, like this, the, there's like yeah. those, the, the really cool like French streets where um, uh, there's sort of an opening between a couple of roads and a these like square, tall, a little yeah. square, yeah, and like the tall, like old French buildings, um, uh, and the shot is overhead, looking down at, at Rex walking around. It looks like something you would see in like the Third Man. It's very, uh, very epic shot, like looking down at him and he's having his freak out, and the I... lights are coming on around. And I, there was such a a disparity between like some of those sequences, and for the most part, the film is very directive, mundane and casual in its cinematography and i felt that that mirrored the nature of the film but one of the things i did love about sequences like his public freakout uh and like the the very ending which we'll get to is like the it's like the camera guy like wakes up and the shots are like very beyond like uh the mundane they're very epic and i would have liked to have seen maybe a little bit more of those like disparity between those moments maybe a few more like uh almost epic shots in in the film like uh and when i say epic i don't necessarily mean like action-packed sequences or incredible framing or something hitchcock like but more maybe just some uh i would have liked to have seen some more um exposition shots in the movie maybe some more uh like just shots of like nature and getting like the surrounding areas uh you you see that that sort of that sort of sequencing in uh, a lot of like modern kind of nebulous films, uh, and I think during the middle sequence, it the plot line was very nebulous, but the shots were very directive. And I would have liked to have seen a little bit more like more nebulous shots of trees and things like that. But it's a little nitpick. It's interesting. I I actually many times during this film, the cinematography reminded me of like a uh, like a Tarkovsky film, especially in like the color palette, notably scenes like where you know we see Raymond at his uh his family's like second house like the summer house you know or whatever um in the mountains the gas station scene at the end at night where they go back to the gas station you know right before the sort of the penultimate scene um I, a lot of that stuff gave me like hardcore Tarkovsky vibes. I don't know. I'm not sure why necessarily that is because this film is is very unlike anything that Tarkovsky has ever done. Something about that cinematography, and it it works for me. Yeah, it I works love, for me I love too. Tarkovsky. It's very it's very utilitarian in use, which I appreciate. Um, it wasn't too flashy at any point. Um, but it did a great job conveying it was, a lot I, of the ideas. Well, it was flashy I find it, once or twice. I find and, it, like, that's what I was saying, is I did like that, how the... It was flashy when it needed to be. I don't even know if flashy is necessarily the right word, but I, I found it very moody in a good way. I think yeah. it I think it, it matched the tone of the film a lot. I think so too. Like, utilitarian is a very good word for it, Like and I and I do agree with that. Um, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to change necessarily too much or anything, like... I, I would just, I think, some more, like, scene, like, setting, like, some more, like, more ambient, you know, almost, like, shots. Go full Malik with it. Just make it a long nature dream sequence. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Just, like, I think that would have been a little bit too much. No, nothing crazy, nothing crazy. I, uh, no, overall, like, I, I really enjoy the film. I just, I feel like it would, it could have been a way maybe to 
to bring some art to the middle uh, of the film. Like I said, I, I enjoyed like the the lack of exposition in the middle sequence. I just I feel it could have helped sort of give it a bit of a shot in the arm without like it it losing its um its sense of of wandering. Yeah, sure. Oh, one thing I want to talk about quick is the music. What did you guys yeah! think of the music? I love it. Oh, it's uh, so goofy. God, yeah, I'm so glad uh, you brought it up. It's it kind of reminded me of Twin Peaks at times. Me too. Which um, I think is appropriate because it is of the era. Yeah. Um, I I liked it for the most part. There were a couple moments where I was like, that's a little too midi. Yeah. That's undercutting it a little bit. Midi, yeah. There's like the, in the bass bits. There's like a, fuck, when the credits roll, there's like an electric guitar. Like, I liked the credits but music. It made me giggle. Yeah, me I too. liked it. My my issue is like in any other film too. I would I would I would enjoy it. I like that kind of cheese and stuff. But I felt like it kind of was going against everything I was just pri- previously talking about. I felt like those those kind of campy sections, those very seventies sort of style like instrumental pieces, had like a. a a saccharine quality to them that nothing else about this film had. I personally would have preferred something more ambient, more uh, and, and more sequence setting, something that that didn't take the foreground as much and wasn't so wasn't as distracting. Again, any other film, I'd love it, but like because yeah, it's, it's my kind of thing. I love that sort of camp, I... but but here, like again, the utilitarian aspect of every other element of this movie, the mundanity of it, like is is such a key point to the plot that. I feel like the 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 score sort of detracted. I I disagree. I I don't think that the score worked all the time in the movie, but I think for the most part it was pretty effective. I think the Twin Peaks comparison works really well, and that might be why I found it tonally appropriate because Twin Peaks is very it has, you know, a fair amount of camp, but, like, a lot of the music in that is in- extremely dark and sort of dissonant, and I think that there is a lot of that same kind of tone in this movie. I really liked all the the parts where there's, like, that that sax, I, I thought, was, was actually really effective to make it sort of feel more disjointed and, and sinister, I think. Um, some of the MIDI stuff, I will agree with you, is a little bit too much, like... It's just aged a little poorly. Yeah, it's, it's so, it's so emblematic of the 80s, uh, that, yeah, I, I don't know if it, if it really matched, but the more analog stuff with, like, the, the saxophone and I think the bass guitar, the bass guitar stuff especially was very Twin Peaks. Yeah. Um, that stuff all worked really well for me. Yeah, no, the, the only big problem i had was with the the midi sequence stuff and i think it it wasn't bad it it just aged poorly it's one of those things where like you had a couple moments where you have that classic midi trope where every note is at the same velocity yeah so they sound the same uh you know uh volume every time a note is played yeah i would say that that's one of the only things that dates the film because i think in terms of its narrative it is pretty timeless i think some of the music stuff like with the midi like you were talking about and like the part where he's like on the on the super old computer like that for me is the only stuff that like really sets the movie in in the decade that it was made yeah and it's true like the the thing i was wanting to hear instead is something that really didn't 
didn't exist at the time either. Like I was looking for like industrial ambience. <laughs> yeah. And like that, that just wasn't a thing, but I, yeah, I feel like something exists now that would fit that better. Now, but yeah. yeah, like I guess, um, yeah, at the time, like that's, that was more feasible. I mean, for sure. This movie came out in 88. They could have done it, but I don't know if it would have worked as well. Yeah. Um, well, depending on the connections they had to, like, I'm not sure the production value was that high. Like, it, it's likely that, like, that the the creators hadn't been necessarily exposed to that yet, whether it existed or not. Sure. I, yeah, I, I don't know about that. I I don't think we can really speculate no, too yeah, much it's, on it's, that. That's entirely but, speculative, um, for sure. That's, let's, uh, let's get into the third act. Yeah. Well, I we, we've we talked a fair amount about the third act itself. I think I think it's time to get into the ending. Um, yeah. We've avoided most, for the most part, heavy spoilers. Uh, if if you care about that sort of thing, I mean, you know how this show is. We're spoiler heavy, but this is probably the biggest spoiler. The very end, you know, they they end up back at the gas station where everything went down. Raymond offers him the coffee. At first, Rex like throws it in his face, and you're like, "Fuck you, you're crazy." Like, you're gonna tell me what happened, but I'm gonna die. Like, why, why would you even think that I would, you know, do this? And then, you know, he digs up the, the coins that they buried and he, he says, uh, in imitation of what Raymond was saying, like, it's only predestined. The only way to make it that it's not predestined that I don't drink the coffee is if I drink the coffee. So fuck it. I'm going to do it. And he does, and it ends just about as badly as you could possibly and, expect. And first off, I I mentioned a little bit earlier, but I, I do love how uh, when when Rex drinks the coffee, like he becomes the almost the same as Raymond. Like in that moment, he he takes the leap. He he leaps off the side, even though he knows what will happen. He knows that he will he will be harmed in some fashion, probably killed. Uh, in the same way that uh, Raymond, as a child, like knew that when he leapt off the the edge, that he would be harmed. Yeah, but did it anyway. So it's cool. Like they, they right? Sort of, he is he's sort of he's embraced that same that same sort of mentality and is is sort of going against destiny by doing it. But who is to say that it wasn't predestined that he would drink the coffee all along like this is one of those movies where like free will is it like is that an illusion or is it not mm -hmm. um very much like real life but uh <laughs> yeah he he drinks the coffee and he falls asleep and wakes up uh in a coffin buried alive uh and then we know that that's also, what happened to Saskia? That is the the horror that has been hanging over the film the entire time, and I think it's it's pretty it's pretty damn horrifying. Rex's acting too in that sequence is fantastic because you get you get like the the full like process of his thoughts. Like as he wakes up, he sort of comes to terms of where he is, his 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 laughter about it, like, and then you see him like pull out his lighter. Um, or in the middle of that, like his 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 freak out, like he's he's pulling his lighter out and he's he's using it, and then his light goes out and he starts laughing. It comes back on and he's still just figuring out where he is and what's happened to him. And I got a sense at one point, like when his lighter went off and he started laughing, that like he also sort of remembered like Saskia, like forgetting her torch. And you because you see that parallel where she's trapped in that golden egg of the car and she can't find her her flashlight and then like he's stuck in this coffin and his lighter is going out and like this 
their well, one last I, light. One, one thing that I didn't think of the last time I watched the movie, but the impression that I got this time is that he accepts the futility of his situation pretty quickly and the the screaming and the keeping the lighter lit i think is him trying to end his suffering sooner by purposely using up all of his oxygen quickly oh i like that because we see at, at a certain point he's literally just screaming nonsense he's just screaming i am rex hoffman like he's just screaming his own name and we see the flame getting lower and lower because it's you know he's hyperventilating he's using a lot of air and he's also burning it up with the lighter and you know we see his lighter flickering out so you know when it finally goes dark we can assume that you know he would asphyxiate not long after that and i think i think that he made that decision rather than you know prolong his suffering you locked in the coffin yeah it works um and i think cool. i think it works thematically super well too cuz it works with the idea of a golden egg you know the coffin is very much you know, a golden egg, especially with the glow of the, the lighter, the you know, you get the a lighter, golden glow. Yeah. And, and then he's uh, imprisoned inside that, you know, in empty space in darkness. Yeah. Um, apparently when they shot that scene, uh, they actually did lock him in that coffin and buried it under a bunch of sandbags. So his his struggles were uh, were genuine, genuine. Um, which I think is really cool. Uh, also of note is in the scene when uh, Raymond chloroforms Saskia. Apparently he was actually holding on to her quite tightly and she couldn't really breathe. So she started having a panic attack, which is why her struggle in that scene appears so genuine. Yeah, it's pretty It's Because pretty she, was, she was genuinely struggling. So yeah, I, I think that those couple of moments are... The closest that this movie ever gets to, like, true horror, but I, I think those are also the, the moments that last the longest after the film is over, at least the ones that stick with me and are just kind of just make me shudder a little bit. Now that we've we've given away the end of the film, I did want to bring up one other scene uh, that happens very, very early on in the film um, that we're not giving closure on until that last moment, and that's one of the first times we... I don't think it's the first, but it's one of the first times we meet uh, Raymond and his family, uh, they're outside, uh, their getaway home. Yeah. And they're, uh, the daughter, like, opens a drawer or something and, uh, outside and, like, there are spiders in it and she screams and the dad says, like, oh, you can scream better than that, come on. And he's doing it almost like kind of a, a dad who's just kind of playing around. Yeah, they and, all, they're all And so she, she gives off a louder scream and then he's like, hey, you try. And, like, he has a son scream and then the wife screams just to kind of join in the fun of it and it seems kind of lighthearted but we're already primed to know that something's wrong with this guy at that point so it's 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 unsettling to us but the family has gives it no thought later on there's a bit where uh, Raymond is is speaking with like one of the the people who lives nearby but again it's probably it's a his country place his probably neighbor, his nearest his neighbor, neighbor yeah. yeah and he says hey did you hear any screaming yesterday and he's like oh no i didn't hear a thing yeah we drove up here we thought we heard screaming did you hear anything and it's like yeah that's how isolated this place is and you get a sense that like you, you know that he's he's testing the place out for like when he he kills someone or when he brings someone back like if they struggle and they scream or whatever that he'll he'll still be able to carry through with his nefarious deeds 
but the the specificity of it isn't laid in place until Rex is screaming in his coffin because he was left there. Well, so he wanted to make sure that anyone screaming like under the ground or whatever wouldn't be heard or come upon. I think I think there's more to it than that though. Go I for it. I think that that particular scene when we first see his family, I think that does not take place during his preparation. I think that takes place after he has kidnapped Saskia. Because, you know, after we see Raymond in the coffin, it sort of pans up from the ground and we see that, you know, it's at his country house and his, you know, his kids are running around and like his wife is there and he's sitting there, you know, a few feet away. And obviously they haven't heard Raymond screaming below the ground. And what I think that how it recontextualizes that first scene is that... It's very likely that as they were sitting down to have their meal outside at that table, you know, where his daughter finds the spiders in the drawer, I think it's extremely likely that Saskia was probably buried a few feet away and probably still alive. I think that that is how it's supposed to recontextualize that earlier scene, and I think it makes it much more horrifying. Yeah, interesting. I I do like how that scene can exist at almost any time in the movie. That's very cool. Like it could be before it, could and the fact be that the, and the fact the fact that the movie does jump around in time a lot, you know, it it could no, take it is place at, yeah, that's very at any time. But that's that's the way that I've always read it. Because, yeah, it's a nice ambiguity, you know, because when we pan up from the ground, we see that table set up, you know, like where they were having dinner before or lunch or whatever. So, so I think it's sort of like a callback to that scene. And it's supposed to be like, now you're experiencing exactly what happened to Saskia. So I think that, that that's supposed to be drawing a parallel. Oh, most definitely. And that, that things will continue to go on the same regardless, you know, for... Right. R- Raymond. Raymond. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, we it pans to the back of his car where he's got a newspaper that's, you know, commenting on Rex's disappearance, you know, in a similar way to Saskia. And their pictures are in ovals and it cuts, it cuts to black except for the two pictures so yeah the 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 golden eggs in space i mean at that point it's fairly obvious yeah. but uh it's uh it's, it's it's a fun it's a fun image right at the end before the credits roll I yeah think. and like even then i i felt the thematic elements of this film were were nicely stated like they're it never felt heavy-handed to me like it, it always felt like just the right level of of hitting home the effect being made clear, the point being conveyed, and nothing more. And, and I, think, I appreciated that greatly. And, and it, it does it does my favorite thing that films can do in, you know, having themes like that. The themes are multifaceted. Yes. Where you can, you know, sort of draw different connections between them and how the different events in the film play into those themes or don't. And that in a lot of ways, there is no right or wrong answer, but it's also, like you said, not super heavy handed in your face. Like, this is what we're trying to say. It's like, no, it's just good storytelling. Right. And And it's something that I uh, would like to 
draw a parallel to like a like a really nice like dawn of impressionism like era level painting as well like a piece that shows like technical proficiency like there's still uh, a great deal of of quality and realism in in the painting but but in the same breath there's a lot of atmosphere to it there's a lot of elements that can be left up to your own interpretation and you get this best of both worlds feeling where you can pontificate over and over not... this film like the way you could an abstract piece but also there is the technical like proficiency there as well which i see as an ideal and also that the that the goal of the piece is not to showcase its technical proficiency yes exactly that, like, it's not art for art's sake yeah it's not like you look at the painting and you're just like, oh my god, it's so technical, like, it's so difficult, how did he do it? You, you can look at it and appreciate it for what it is, and then if you choose to inspect it more closely, then you can start seeing the more intricate work right. and appreciating and that for what it is. Right, and on the other side of that coin, it's also not so nebulous that you can look at it and see whatever the fuck you want to see. Right, Like, you're exactly. still being guided by some thematic exactly. elements. Yeah. And so your your pontificating doesn't feel futile. You you feel like you're you're inspecting something that deserves further inspection. Yeah, yeah. It builds it up just enough so you know it's not completely nebulous, like you said. You know they they give enough context clues that you can take a lot of out of it, a lot out of it. But it's not just random images for images' sake. It's yeah. one of those things where you you get as much out of it as you want to find, but. It's still concrete. Right. You and know? If you're looking for, like, uh, specific, like, paintings that I would compare to, I would say, like, a John Singer Sargent. Yeah, that's uh, that's your forte, not mine. Yeah, um, no, <laughs> that's cool. And you are referencing Elephant earlier. I, I've never seen it, so... One of the things I, I did see is that obviously this is this is a, a a Dutch film, Dutch director. You know the main couple actors are Dutch, except for Raymond. You know the whole production team is Dutch, and they submitted this film as Holland's entry for the Academy Awards. Um, really, you know the year after it came out, and it was rejected because there was too. The, the Academy said that there was too much French spoken in the film for it to really be considered a Dutch film. What? Right. <laughs> Silly. Yeah, no, I think that's really, really fucking stupid. Like, yeah, a lot of the film does take place in France, and, like, Raymond and Rex are speaking French to each other, but, like... It's written, the screenplay is written by a Dutch author based off of his own book. The director is Dutch. Like I said, the entire, pretty much the entire production crew is Dutch. Like, how does that disqualify it as a Dutch film? Yeah, do, do you have to, like, let, answer. like, meet a certain percentage of the film in yeah, Holland I, for it to match? Because I know even this year, like, uh, Cold War, um, the new Pavel Pavoslavsky movie. Yeah. A lot of it takes place in France. It's in French a lot of times, even though it's a Polish. But it's a Polish film release, yeah. It's and it's and it is nominated for an Academy, yeah. yeah. I mean, granted, this this film did come out thirty years ago. You know, maybe if it came out now, the Academy would be more accepting of it. I would think I'm, so. As as a Dutchman, I'm just a little bit bitter about it because it's maybe the only really not notable 
Dutch film that exists. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm just kind of I'm just kind of frustrated that it doesn't. That it, well, I mean, it's like it's like uh, to paraphrase Alice in Wonderland, you've lost your Dutchness. <laughs> yeah, the the Dutch are not known for our cinema. I was gonna say uh, yeah to to bring us in to uh, to our reviewing. I was gonna say, uh, uh, God, you probably have to cut this, but it's a slouse slouse egg it all out. These are the stars I can do without. Come on. I'm reviewing you. Come on. I'm going to leave that in. (laughs) Um, (laughs) One out of five puns. Yeah. Those are my best. Let's, uh, yeah. Mostly shitty falsetto. You've done, uh, you've done better, but you've, you've done worse. Uh, True. Uh, yeah, I I guess I'll go ahead and start with rating if there's, uh, nothing else you guys want to get into. No, no, that's it for me. Okay. Um, yeah, I love this movie. I can understand why it might not be the film for every, for everyone, but it works on every level for me. Um, I, I think it's, the storytelling is incredibly tight. Uh, it's got some really interesting, uh, themes and ideas, and there's a lot, you know, to interpret how you choose. The acting is great. The, the actors who play Rex and Raymond are fucking awesome. And even though she's in relatively little of the film, um, the actress who plays Saskia is great as well. I, I, I love this film, uh, on just about every level. It's a, it's going to be a five out of five for me. I loved, I loved it too. It was, it was a, a pretty, pretty fantastic film. Like I said, like during it, it, it was when you're not, not aware of sort of the direction that the, the film is taking and you're more used to American cinema and something that's a little bit more, uh, directed towards exposition and you know, like a, reaching the end, it can wear on you a little bit. But personally, I I enjoy that sort of thing. Um, and uh, the the more I reflect on this film, the more we've talked about during this podcast, the the more I've come to enjoy it once again. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna say um, four point five. Yeah, I think this movie is uh, really cohesive, a really great example of a slow burn with a great payoff. Um, what a payoff, yeah, right? Yeah, I really like how it feels like Faustian bargain by the third act um, when the two characters meet and work off of each other. And that give and take is so good. Thematically, this movie is really strong and cohesive as well. With all of the ideas presented in the movie working towards these bigger ideas like we've talked about of destiny and the golden egg metaphor works really well throughout. Um, the only minor gripe I had was um, the middle of the movie feeling a little flat in comparison to the rest of the movie. Um, but even then, it did serve a good structural purpose, and it did serve the movie well, um, even though the pacing wasn't quite to what I was hoping for. I enjoyed a lot of the Twin Peaks-esque music. Overall, I think it's a movie worth checking out. Um, I would give it a four out of five. All right. Um, before we move on, I do want to mention this movie was remade. Uh, there, there's an yeah, American yeah, starring mo- Kurt Russell and uh, Kiefer Sutherland. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's directed by the same director. No shit. Um, yeah. When? Uh, ninety three. So five Whoa. years, five years later. 
Um, I'd, I'd be curious to see that. I'm not a hundred percent on on it being directed by George Slautzer, but I, I think it up. I read that somewhere. Weird. Yeah, so that'll give The Vanishing an average of four and a half out of five pods. Check it out. Uh, Ben, while you're looking for that, I had one more uh, interesting piece of trivia. Uh, The the author of the the novel that the film was based on, um, who I mentioned also wrote the screenplay, uh, his, his inspiration for the story was from a uh, a misreported news story actually that he you know read in the newspaper about a woman mysteriously vanishing from a truck stop and you know never being heard from again and years later after he you know had written the story he found out that the the newspaper had just misreported that she was found the next day because all that happened was she got on the wrong bus. <laughs> <laughs> and, no, and her friends didn't know that what had happened to her until she showed up again the next day. So the whole impetus for this story was just uh, a lady got on the wrong bus at her at, at a truck stop and um, and <laughs> and a, a a newspaper made it seem a lot more sinister than it actually was. That is unexpectedly wholesome, <laughs> right? Yeah. So apparently, uh, yeah, the remake was directed by the same director in '93, starring Weird. Jeff Bridges and Kiefer Sutherland. No shit. Apparently, is it the same title? Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the impetus. well, I mean, it's a, it's an American film, so it's the vanishing. the The original title of this film is Sporlos, which, if my Dutch is correct, means traceless. Which I'm gonna translates go literally. I'm gonna put out and say that's a cooler title. Like traceless is pretty neat. Yeah. Like I like yeah. it. I see why they changed it for Amer for English. You know, apparently this version of the vanishing was uh, one of Stanley Kubrick's favorite horror movies. He said. Is one of the movies he found most horrifying, more so than even The Shining for him, um, and so he got weird. We're gonna that was some it. of the reason the the English version was made, and the English version had uh, a budget of twenty million, which is oh, about you were you were saying that the. Uh, you're saying that the original one oh, was yeah. one yes, of the, yes. okay, the one that we were talking about. Yes. I thought you were saying Same. that the re- the American remake was one of the most horrifying no, films that yeah. Stanley no, Kubrick had ever seen. Kubrick liking the the one we were talking about That's so why the much is why the made. English one. Gotcha, was gotcha, made. gotcha. And uh, apparently the 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 U.S. version had a budget of twenty million, which is like ten times the budget of the original. Kubrick would really like it. That makes sense. I, yeah, I, I can totally see that. Yeah. Um, I also think it's pretty high praise. I'm. I would be very curious to see the the English, the American remake. It's probably Same. not. It's probably not very good. But considering like considering that it it's the, considering that's the same director and like Jeff Bridges and yeah, Kiefer man. Sutherland, I want to see it. And, I definitely. No, do. I'm, I'm curious. I I'm forgot curious. to mention who plays Saskia. Oh God. Who Sandra Bullock. Oh. oh yeah, she would. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Oh man, I I'm mm. morbidly curious. I, yeah. I, that would be one of those those remakes that I would go into it expecting to hate it, but 
you know, the... I, could, I could see it being great. I could see it being fucking terrible. I could, I could really the, the, fact, the, the, the mystery there the is fact, one I want to, I want to get to the bottom of. The for fact sure. that the original has a notable place in film history and the American remake does, does not. not <laughs> that's what makes me the most nervous because the the ingredients are there. Same director. I'm sure that the screenplay is based on the original film. You know, it's got good actors in it. Like, the ingredients for it to be a good film are there, but the fact that yeah, I... Yeah, not necessarily a good American film. The, like, fact, the fact that I know... Yeah, translate. The fact that I know about Sporlos, but I don't know about the American vanishing is dubious at best. Highly dubious. Highly indeed, dubious. Sir. I think that means it's probably time for a word from our sponsors, huh? Well, yeah, it would, but where the fuck is Clotilda? Is she, uh... You've done the last couple all right without her. Yeah, it's true. Well, yeah, I mean, we still did get the, the, the copy in. Yeah, here's, yeah. Your, here's your copy. Oh, thanks for the, the fucking... Yeah, all right, what is... Sure is. What is this, this copy? This is an interesting... It looks like a... Okay, well, it... How do I translate this? Um... <laughs> Uh, sorry, the, the writing, uh, on this, it, it seems to be, um, cryptic, uh, I, I, I guess you could say, it, it, it sort of, it seems to, to cycle between, uh, Sumerian and then a, a form of Braille that I've never seen before, um, and then spikes at the, oh, ah, it just, was, I just pricked it, myself on the text. I oh, should have mentioned out. the blood is, I should have mentioned it was delivered. It was delivered to us by a bat. Oh man, you really should have said that before I pricked myself. And then the, the word started like filling out and okay. we'll just read it so we can get our money, Cleve. Okay. Well here I'm, I'm nursing my finger, uh, to get the, the, the blood it's really, it's really, it's really getting everywhere. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll be quick before I pass out. Um, yeah, this is, this is brought to you by, um, uh, Drac, uh, Ul, yeah, or some other shitty anagram, um, uh, the, the, the makers of the, of Balsa Steaks, bringing you this, this wonderful new, this new invention that's, uh, light bulbs without, without UV rays, uh, install them everywhere, you must install them so that we may... We may uh, not be burned by the brightness, whatever the fuck. Sorry, I'm I'm uh, getting lightheaded now. Um, yeah, yeah, cool, cool stuff. Light bulbs from vampires, awesome, fucking great. Now, um, see, it was my, I was oh, under the impression. Bump. <laughs> I was under the impression that most light bulbs did not have UV rays. Hence, why you don't get sunburned being inside. Well, you gotta make them to innovate. You know. You gotta, you gotta foresee the problems so you can solve them. Yeah, it's also probably true that being Transylvanian, they might not be all that familiar with, like, the, the inner workings of, like, electric bulbs. That's probably true. Anyway, thanks for the money, Dracula. Yeah, that was it. Dracula. Uh, Dracula. Um, okay, that, that's our sponsor for this week. That'll bring us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you for listening, as always. If you like the show and you want to support us and have us keep doing what we do, 
just go on Apple Podcasts and hit five stars and leave a review about how much you love listening to our voices every week and how insightful we are about spooky things. Um, you can also do that anywhere that you get your podcast that's not Apple Podcasts. We were sent a scroll uh, just now that said um, we need at least 10 reviews to get Clotilda back. So please, Oh my guys. god, they're holding Clotilda hostage. We need 10 reviews. If you want Clotilda back, then all you have to do is go leave us a, a good rating and review, and uh, maybe Clotilda will be returned to us. You can also follow us on Twitter to get updates on whether Clotilda is back or not um, at PodPeoplePod. Um, uh, send us your hot takes and stuff there. We're still looking for more of those. Um, we might have a hot take zone next week. You know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, Letterboxd is also the, the place that I usually plug. Um, follow us there for, for the, the list of the, the movies and the ratings and the links. Um, you know, do the thing. Follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome. Yo, you can follow me on Twitter, occasionally tweeting for LightArc Studio. And, uh, yeah, just giving you the all the, the cool information on the the, the demo we're going to have coming out for It Stairs Back in the next few weeks. Yeah, sorry, it's, it keeps on uh, being the next few weeks, but uh, we've we've made some great progress in the past couple of months, and we just we want it to be right. We want it to be extra, extra spicy and delicious for you guys. So we're, we're putting in that extra time. And, uh, yeah, you can also find my artwork, uh, on, uh, art station, uh, either under Cleveland Mosier or, uh, Iron Prism. And, uh, yeah, check it out. Check out all those cool, uh, all those cool colors and things that I'm, uh, I'm laying out for you all for all the good people. And uh, that about does it for me. How about you, Ben? Yeah, I'm at Mr. Sheets on Twitter. Um, I would also recommend just following Drill on Twitter. Um, oh, at yeah. Wint. Um. <laughs> Can't go wrong. And he's not even giving us any money. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, it's just a general suggestion. Just a general suggestion. All right, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, next week, uh, Frankenhooker. Yeah. It's uh, Ben's pick, and uh, that is going to be tonally completely different from this episode. Wait, Franken who? Kerr? Oh, God. Bye. <laughs> Without a trace. <laughs> <laughs>